three weeks now since the war in Ukraine began. In just a few hours, will mark three weeks since it's be- since it began. And again today, the attacks on civilians appeared to continue. The shelling of a theater in Mariupol, one of the prettiest buildings in that city, if I remember correctly. We don't know how many people were inside at the time. It was apparently being used to, as a shelter by civilians in the area. Uh, images do show the theater destroyed. Uh, by Russian shelling, allegedly by city officials who uh, who released that information. This is what it sounds like in Mariupol these days, according to a Associated Press video and story that was shot there this week. Now, keep in mind, this southern coastal city is not very big. Not particularly remarkable, but it is a place where people lived. If you walk the streets there, normal little houses, a fairly nondescript Ukrainian city on the Azov Sea. All this came as Ukraine's president delivered an address to the U.S. Congress just a day after he did the same to Canadian parliamentarians. Volodymyr Zelensky invoked the attacks on Pearl Harbor and 9-11. He mentioned Martin Luther King, and he again pleaded with the U.S. to help stop Russia's invasion of Ukraine, including protecting U.S. skies, or Ukrainian skies, rather. He called out President Joe Biden in English by name. I'm addressing the President Biden. You are the leader of the nation, of your great nation. I wish you to be the leader of the world. Being the leader of the world means to be the leader of peace. Thank you. Slava Ukraine. Well, soon after, the president announced $800 million in additional military aid for Ukraine, including 800 Stinger anti-aircraft systems, 1,000 light armor weapons, light anti-armor weapons, rather, and 100 tactical unmanned aerial systems. Uh, Help, but not the no-fly zone, at least the humanitarian no-fly zone he might have been looking for. Well, to look back at three weeks of war in Ukraine, where it might be headed, and how much more allies can do to help Ukraine, I'm joined now from Canberra by retired Major General Mick Ryan. He served for more than 35 years in the Australian Army. He's commander of the Australia Defence College, and he's author of the book War Transformed. Uh, Major General Ryan, thank you so much again for joining me. Hi, Ben. It's great to be with you again. I guess we spoke right at the outset of, of this of this war, and it was very difficult to figure out what was going to happen. But uh, I, I was reading some of your fascinating thoughts on on what's happened, and you've talked about Plan A, Plan B, and now Plan C for the Russian military. Yeah, I think the Russians, when we first talked, were still thinking about being able to get this war over pretty quickly um, with some armoured operations in the south and east and a quick airborne assault on Kiev's airports. That didn't work out well, so they had to rethink, readjust and adopt what I call Plan B, which is a fairly slow, uh, grinding campaign of attrition in the northeast and south of the country Even that hasn't worked well for them. They've had logistics problems. They've lost a lot of their manpower. The Russian Air Force hasn't really turned up to the fight in a way that you would expect. So now they've adapted again, and now it's all about trying to encircle and pummel cities and terrorise civilians in the hope of a political accommodation from the Ukrainian president and his government. I read 
what I thought was a fairly astounding statistic today in the New York Times, 7,000 Russian soldiers killed was the estimate I gather coming out of the United States, more than in Afghanistan and Iraq combined, for the Americans at least. That seems like an unbelievable number. Uh, and it speaks to something from, from your standpoint. What does it tell us? Well, I think the number, you know, is is speculative. Um, it kind of makes sense to me, but we won't know numbers for a very long time yet. I think around 5% of casualties in this kind of operation is probably about right for what we've seen so far. It means a couple of things. Firstly, that, you know, the Russians just did not expect by any means the level of resistance they've had from the Ukrainians. Secondly, the Ukrainians have really fought well. I mean, they've outfought and outthought the Russians at almost every step of this campaign. But the other implication for the Russians is they really need to start finding reinforcements from beyond this theatre because they've committed 100% of forces already committed or, or at least allocated for this war. So they're having to go to the east, to the Pacific Fleet, to other garrisons, go to Syria, get mercenaries from there to backfill the amount of Russian soldiers who have been killed, who have been wounded, who have deserted or have had other uh, issues which would take them off the front line. When looking at the intelligence that would have gone into planning this invasion, and one assumes there was intelligence, they're neighbours. They know each other's countries particularly well, I assume. Where was the failure of intelligence here? Or was it simply, and you've talked about the, I was an article you retweeted today about the Murphy's Law of Combat for Vladimir Putin. Was this simply Vladimir Putin not knowing what his military capacity or capabilities were and his generals not willing to tell him that there were problems? I think it's a little bit of all those things, but we've also seen the reporting in various agencies about the Russian intelligence agency, the FSB, uh, falsifying or underestimating uh, different elements of Ukrainian military capacity and their political will to resist an activity such as this. So, yeah, it's it's been an intelligence failure for the Russians, but also I think it's a failure of the military transformation program that they've been uh, undergoing since the operations in Georgia in 2008. Uh, many of us have looked at that program up until now and thought, well, actually, this is really interesting there's some good concepts here. General Gerasimov seems to have a good grip on modernisation in the Russian military. Well, all those views have pretty much gone out the window in the last three weeks, and uh, all their writing about transformation has not matched or has certainly not supported their battlefield performance, which has been terrible. I guess, as, as was mentioned, there was Murphy's Law. It all changes when you encounter the encounter uh, resistance, right? All those plans, the best laid plans get thrown out the window. Oh, absolutely. I mean, war is an interactive sport, right? Um, everything you are trying to do is being thwarted, resisted, or in some other way trying to be stopped by your adversary. Um, and the Russians have relearned that very old lesson. I mean, it's a 5,000-year-old lesson for humans, uh, they've relearned that lesson in a very big way over the last three weeks. I think it's going to take them a very long time, years and years, to get over this uh, battlefield debacle. In the meantime, we are witnessing some truly horrific scenes. Um, we don't know exactly what happened in Mariupol today, but we've been witnessing horrific scenes of attacks on civilian infrastructure, civilian 
residences, civilians fleeing. Uh, what possible tactic is that when you're trying, I would imagine, to eventually take over these lands and rule them? Yeah, it doesn't seem to make any sense, right? Um, it's a very short-term view. I mean, clearly, the Russians, this Plan C they've adopted is about terrorising the Ukrainians into some kind of accommodation. Um, it might terrorise them into an accommodation, maybe. I don't think that's certain. But you've still got um, 44 million Ukrainians, less the ones who have been uh, forced out of their country as refugees, who will for a long time to come, hate the Russians. And any occupying force or puppet government will find it all but impossible to govern 44 million Ukrainians who hate them. And yet the war continues. Vladimir Putin has not stopped this. Uh, is he in a position, do you think, where he can step back? Well, you know, I think it was Clausewitz who said war has a logic all of its own. We, even when things from an outside observer don't seem to make sense to the participants, uh, they have their own logic. At the moment, um, the war has its own logic for Putin. He will uh, stop fighting when he finds something that he can call a victory. Uh, will it be the capture of Kiev? I don't think so. I just don't think the Russians have the capacity to surround or take it. But he could find another way uh, to claim a victory for his people and his key supporters in the Kremlin. Could well be his gains in the South or some other mechanism. I'm speaking with retired Major General Mick Ryan, who served for more than 35 years as with the Australian Army and commander of the Australia Defence College, author of War Transformed. After this, we'll talk a bit more, a bit more about the aid offered today by the US and whether Ukraine is being given what it needs to defend itself and perhaps even win this war if it's winnable. We'll be back. Seems Ukrainian troops are going back on the offensive uh, a little mm -hmm. bit. Is that is that realistic? Oh, absolutely. Every good army is trained that if if you lose a position, you counterattack as quickly as you can. And the Ukrainians are no different to other good armies uh, because they've proven that on the battlefield. So I think that's what we should expect from a professional army. Um, they really have performed so, so much better than a lot of people expected before this war. There's going to be a lot of armies that will be looking at them to learn lessons after this war. Today, uh, President Zelensky again addressed uh, U.S. Congress. He spoke to Canadian parliamentarians yesterday. He's been asking for some sort of protection of the skies. He did get um, a promise today, more aid from the Americans. Is he getting what he needs to defend his country, do you think? Um, it, was a, it was a wonderful address. I mean, I watched it uh, like many others did, um, very emotional, and the video he showed was was quite um, confronting, I think. Um, is he getting what he needs? He's probably getting a baseline of what he needs. He's certainly not getting what he wants, which is a no-fly zone. But, you know, uh, the United States is now going to transfer another 10,000 uh, anti-armour and anti-aircraft systems, a bunch of unmanned aerial vehicles uh, and a lot of small arms, ammunition, body armour and helmets and people go, oh, what are they going to do? Well, they're actually pretty important. You do go through these things pretty quickly in a war, so they will make a difference. Um, but I, clearly, President Zelensky would like to have a no-fly zone. Um, NATO and the United States have made it clear at this point in time they don't want to do that. Um, 
that may change if the Russians do something even worse in the future. We know that NATO leaders are meant to meet next week, um, a week from tomorrow, I believe. Do you expect anything to come out of that 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 could be a game changer or anything major to come out of that? Well, I think there's a lot that can happen in that week. I mean, we could even have a ceasefire if peace negotiations keep going on, although I'd say that's a very, very, very low probability. I think the president is also attending that NATO meeting. So it's, it's a meeting of the principals and they're the people who make the decisions um, you know, I think you might see another uh, level of support for Ukraine come out of that. But also what we might see come out of that meeting is a different security architecture for Europe post this war. Europe's going to have to double down on investing in its own defence over the coming decade, and it will require a different national security and defence architecture to do that. Yeah, I was going to ask you that because even though this war is still raging, I think a lot of people have already started looking at what might lie ahead. Uh, a troubled peace, one would imagine, between neighbors, Ukraine and Russia, but also for the rest of Europe. Uh, how do you see or how do you unwind this conflict, given where it is now, given the sorts of animosities that exist? Well, I mean, the animosity between Russia and Ukraine is now a generational thing. There's no way you can stop that now. Um, the next couple of generations of Ukrainians and Russians are going to hate each other. And they're not going to trust each other. That's just human nature. I think in the rest of Europe, you've already seen a turning. Uh, the German Chancellor's speech a couple of weeks ago was certainly a defining moment in the what some have called the post post Cold War Europe. Um, you've seen comments about European armies come back, uh, a European Union Security Council. I think all these kind of things are in the mix for the post-Russo-Ukrainian war whenever it ends. McRyan, thank you so much for joining me tonight. I appreciate your time and your insight as always. Thanks, Ben. It's great to talk to you again.